the privilege to address the resurrection of Christ in our theology series. There are a few topics that that would be more exciting and a privilege to be able to address than this one right here. So we welcome you tonight and thank you for being part of our series. Dr. Frank Morrison, a lawyer who had been brought up in a rationalistic movement environment, had come to the opinion in the early 1900s that the resurrection was nothing but a fairy tale. And he wanted to set out to prove that fairy tale as wrong. And so he decided to do some research and to try to tell the story that he felt had to be an, an explained and, and um, presented. That the, the story of Jesus Christ was a mythical story, that the resurrection was not something that truly happened. So as he set out and studied the facts, supposedly, and he's writing this book or trying to write the book and going to write a book that to prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't real, wasn't genuine, he ended up writing a book that he had no intention of writing. And the book that he ended up writing was this book, Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter of this book is entitled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. And he explained in this book that, or in this chapter, that he set out to write to prove the resurrection of Christ wrong, but as he did his research and came to this understanding and the facts and everything that, that was presented to him, that he realized the reality of the resurrection in Christ and that, that fact changed his life. So I invite you to turn as Kevin comes up to read Luke chapter 24, 25 to 27, and 44 to 47. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. And he said unto them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And down to verse 44. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Thank you, Kevin. Jesus and the New Testament writers declared the significant reality and the facts concerning Christ that they had been revealed not just a couple of years ago, a couple dozen years ago, but hundreds of years prior through the Old Testament scriptures as the Spirit of God came upon holy writers of past and revealed the fact that there indeed would be one day a servant that would come. And Christ summarizes it here in Luke 24, and he refers to the law of Moses, so Moses wrote about it, refers to the prophets that they wrote about it in the Psalms. So it's throughout the Old Testament that this fact would one day occur, that Christ would be resurrected on our behalf. And we realize that there are many Old Testament passages, here are some of them, that refer to the resurrection of Christ, giving a, 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 a foretaste of what's going to happen, that one day one would come, this suffering servant, and that he would be raised from the dead. And I want to look at just one of those passages for a couple minutes before we give more of an apologetics message. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. I want to zero in on Isaiah 53 
as Isaiah wrote this truth, this incredible psalm or this incredible prophetic passage that one day the suffering servant would come and what he would do. As we step into this context, it's pretty important that we understand first what this passage emphasizes. In fact, I have it highlighted and read throughout my chapter. Chapter, We see throughout this chapter that there is an emphasis that this one that's to come that's referred to in chapter 52, verse 13, as the suffering servant. It says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Then it says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This whole idea of, of sacrificial substitute is scattered throughout this chapter. Then it says also in 5, with his wounds we are healed. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, a lamb led to the slaughter. 8, stricken for the transgression of my people. 10, crushed, put to grief. Soul made an offering for, his, for the guilt. Then verse 12, bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we see throughout this chapter is emphasized that the suffering servant would come and he would bear the transgressions of people. He would bear their iniquities. But throughout it we find some amazing truth sprinkled. In fact, look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We're seeing that this idea that something's going to happen to him, that he's going to be crushed. This word crush means to be, to be trampled on. This is a, not a soda can. Try not to drink it. But this is a sparkling water. The word crush or trampled, that's really the idea of it, just to be totally smashed, to be pulverized, to be crushed. That's what's going to happen. He's forecasting with this servant. He's going to be crushed. He's going to be absolutely um, trampled upon. But look, he then says, he has put him to grief. Describing the suffering servant that's coming, that he's going to be put to grief. So we're putting all this together. Okay, he's crushed. He's going to be put to grief. Throughout this passage talks about the idea of substitution. And yet there's something absolutely astounding. He moves on. He says, as he's put to grief, he says, when a soul is made an offering for guilt, the guilt of the people that he's substituting, he shall see his offspring. Well, how can that happen? If you are crushed, if you are trampled upon, if you are destroyed, your soul is made an offering for sin, you have died. How can you see something if you're dead? Because dead people can't see. Or can they? Well, speaking of something pretty profound, what's going to happen here, and it's kind of a strange paradox that's, that's coming across here, that he's dead, but he's able to see. So these words that death will not hold the servant, but rather after he has died, he will come back to life. He will see. He's going to see what he's done. But he moves on. He says he shall prolong his days. So he's not done. He's not annihilated. His life hasn't been crushed out, stamped out permanently. He will prolong his days. It's the idea that he's going to live long days. Really what's in view here is, is eternity. So how in the world, this suffering servant, he's going to die, but he's going to live again. And then he moves on to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. His intense suffering, um, the word anguish, to have, to have trouble, to have heaviness, to have distress. In the midst of this great trial which led to his death, he's going to see. He, he, he's going to be able to see what happened. He's going to see, and what does it say? He will see and be what? Be satisfied. He's going to see what he accomplished, and he's going to be satisfied over what he has accomplished. And this is what we celebrate at this, this absolutely awesome time of the year. We that know Christ is our Savior. We're, we're brought into reminder once again that he was crushed for us, but he saw and he's satisfied. What is he satisfied over? Yes, that God is exalted, that God is magnified, but he's satisfied over what he has accomplished. He's satisfied over what what he has been able to bring to fruition. He's satisfied because he has been able to to be in part to conquer death, to be able to transfer people from the the kingdom of of Satan into the kingdom of of his kingdom, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Jesus Christ is satisfied. He's going to live again, the prophet Isaiah is telling us. Some 700 years later, though the prophet was long dead, Decade after decade, century after century, dead. His prophecy was about to come true. The day, if I may say, of the grand opening had arrived. Christ was in the grave. The enemy thought that they were victors. They were celebrating. But God's plan that was put into, into motion in eternity past is about to be executed, is about to be demonstrated for all the world to say, to see. This, this day, the resurrection, would be the apex of Christianity and the Achilles heel of her opponents. Because Christ was about to be declared alive and to be celebrated for what he has done, the resurrection. And as Paul would write those words in Corinthians, that death, where is your sting? Where is, where is your victory? So as we look at what Christ has accomplished, we stand at the edge of the tomb and we celebrate in these words, Matthew 28, verse 6, he is not here for he is risen as he said. It's an awesome truth that should change our lives. This morning, the song at Calvary, and I mentioned grace and mercy, pardon and Calvary. Those truths ought to penetrate so deep because the resurrection is a reality. He's alive. Years ago, there was a songwriter, musician. How many of you ever heard of the name Keith Green? You're familiar with Keith Green? Okay, most of you are, a lot of you. Keith Green is a hippie in the 1970s that came to know Christ as his Savior, and his life was a radical transformation, um, what, he, what God did in his life. He started composing and writing Christian music and putting on concerts. In fact, his concerts, and I've watched some of them, seemed to be more evangelistic crusades than music, his preaching. And he would often say this, this phrase, if you praise and worship Jesus with your mouth and your life does not praise and worship him, there's something wrong. And he had a problem with the record company that he was signed under once there's this radical transformations happening because he said, I want to give away my albums free. So they had to work that out because he said, I don't think people ought to be paying for this ministry that I'm involved in. So he started giving away his albums. Then he started holding free concerts. And he said, I don't want to charge people. He says, I'm making enough from royalties in the past before I caught on to this. So he just started giving away everything free. Eventually had two houses in Los Angeles and 60-some people that were addicts. 
he just ministered. He was incredible in what God did. I want us to listen to a song that he um, made famous, the Easter song by Keith Green.
Amen, indeed. Hallelujah, he is risen. That fact ought to change our lives. I want to ask you a question that if you were, I mean, just trying to get my thing to slide. Imagine next Monday morning in eight days that you go into your workplace and you're chatting with your, your work associates and they were to ask you, so what did you do this weekend? And you tell them, well, I went to church and I celebrated yesterday the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we as Christians um, enjoy and appreciate all that he's done, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And if they were to say to you, that's a bunch of rubbish, that's foolishness. How in the world can you believe in the resurrection? How can you believe in something so antiquated? How can you believe in such something that's just not true? What would be your response to them? What would you say? I want us to look at four evidence. I got the, these E's are actually from Lee Strobel, this alliteration. And I'm going to look at these four evidence that we see of the resurrection of Christ. How we can answer them. Because whether we like it or not, atheists are more prevalent in, in this world. In fact, my son-in-law works with one opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he would, I'm sure, say or question the resurrection of Christ. He's not going to say, oh yeah, we know Christ rose again. How do we answer them? So I'm going to look at the first point is execution. You have to have a death before you have a resurrection, right? Is that pretty fair to say? You have to have a death before a resurrection. There's virtually really no scholar that will argue that Jesus was killed. That's an important point that we need to understand. They're, they're not going to argue that Jesus died. There may be some ignorant skeptics that would say, well... Maybe when he got into the, the, the grave and that cool air revived him and, and it was able to just give him strength again and he was able by the cool air walk out and, you know, he got his strength up that he was even able to move the stone and then even to overtake the soldiers and move. <laughs> What's involved in a crucifixion? Did Jesus really die? There's no evidence anywhere let me say that again. There's no evidence anywhere that anyone ever survived a Roman crucifixion, period. There's nothing, there's no documentation that anyone was able to survive. We're going to show a clip. Parents, if you don't want your kids to see this one-minute clip from the, the Passion of Christ, you could have them close their eyes. But we're going to show a clip so that you understand, and I'm sure you've seen it, but that we walk that road again. What is involved in an execution, in Jesus' execution, in, in the smacking, the destroying of his back, the flogging, and the state of condition he was prior to taking that walk to, to Calvary?
for one to understand, Roman floggings, they were brutal. When a Roman soldier would use his whip, his leather thongs, and he had tied up in little knots at the end and also had pieces of bone that were like little hooks. And so as it would come across the back repeatedly, not talking about the hooks yet, just the balls hitting the back and the ribbons of the the flesh underneath just would, would eventually bruise up, get tender, then each would just break open. Besides the bones, when it was pulled back, just ripping open the skin, the flogging, little wonder as we read of Christ traveling to Calvary and stumbling on the way, the exhaustion. One physician who studied Roman beatings said this, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. He was then nailed to the cross in this condition, having lost lots of blood, and then it would be a struggle for him to push up. Years ago, I came across a journal that had my files, but I found it online. American, American Medical Association Journal in March of 1986. People were not happy when this physician wrote this. And you could read all of the people really cut him up. But this is an article published in the American Medical Association Journal. This is what one physician said. Clearly the weight, and it's really, it's nine pages, but I took out one sentence. Clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicate that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted, end of quote. And that's not a Christian speaking, it's just a medical doctor studying the evidence. Multiple sources in the Bible speak of the crucifixion of Christ, and five sources outside of it speak of it, that Christ was truly executed. The Roman historian Tacitus, first century historian, spoke of it. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, spoke of it. Um, Lucian, who was hostile to Christianity, spoke of it. People are speaking of Christ's crucifixion and death. So for one to say, well, Christ wasn't real is totally false because it's Many people, not all Christians, that substantiate that there was a Christ that lived and that he wasn't executed wouldn't follow the facts. Secondly, what I want us to see is, is early. All of the evidence that we have, it's early. What's the big deal of this? We have accounts that Jesus rose from the dead, early accounts. You might say, well, what's that got to do with it? Why is such a big deal? Because some people will say that this is just a legend, you know how legends develop, you know, you embellish that they go on over the centuries, over the, the decades, you know, and then it about 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, and pretty soon you have this big, big, big story. Um, I read an article by an atheist two weeks ago who claimed that the gospel stories of Jesus' resurrection were written by people who used to be worshipers of the god Dionysius who was believed to have died and rose again. And so they're just taking their pagan ideas and plugging that into Christianity. And they developed in this, he said, they just developed this legend of Jesus. So how do we answer that? Here's why it's a big deal. Legends, how long do legends take to develop? You think you could have a legend in five years? How about 50 years? Probably more like 100 plus years. I mean, look at Robin Hood. It developed, no. <laughs> so it takes time to develop legend. But we look at the account of Jesus. We look at the first century church and the creeds that they have. We have early creeds 
of the church recorded for us in Scripture and outside, which is their set of beliefs of what they believed in and what they rallied around. And their creed says this, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. And then it goes on to list in this creed 514 witnesses that saw Jesus. To what am I referring to? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following. But that was a creed that was put together in the early church. And I say a creed, if you want to turn there with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what also I received. So here is, is Paul writing. Jesus was crucified in either 30 or 33 A.D. 23 years later, Paul is writing his letter to the church at Corinth. That's pretty early. And he uses a rabbinic term, a technical term, with the word delivered. And it's, by the way, in the aorist tense. So he's speaking of something that wasn't just delivered today. He's speaking, I delivered it to you Corinthians in the past. And it's technical. It's something that he's giving to them. Something that's a creedal form. So here we have him writing to Corinthians, 23 years after the resurrection of Christ, of something that was delivered to them earlier. Now, you might say, okay, maybe it was just delivered a year or a couple years earlier when he was at Corinth. But I think it goes back even earlier than that, um, that we're seeing of the resurrection of Christ. Secular scholar, a man named Jochen Jeremias, refers to this creed, and I quote, as the earliest tradition of all. So are we going to have our atheist friends be skeptical over this creed, over a document that we have? Well, that's not real. Let me give you a little bit of bearing. Um, Alexander the Great lived in, what, 300s B.C., right? Great conqueror of Greece did his thing. The first recorded biography that we have of him is by a Roman that lived in the first century. 400 years later, 400 years afterwards, and in fact, the oldest manuscript that we have of that guy's writing is um, 500 years after him. So a total of 900 years after Alexander the Great lived, they have a document. And we believe it. We quote Alexander. You, many of you probably have read about Alexander the Great's life. So here, we'll believe in this, something that was written 400 years afterwards, but we're going to have a problem believing in something that was written in 23 years afterwards. Oh, but we're going to do one better. Go with me to Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18. Galatians 1. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul is speaking about his Damascus Road experience. How soon did he have that experience after Jesus rose again? Four or five years that he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And then if I'm understanding right, he was whirled away to the desert for his Master Divinity degree. That's a three-year degree. He was three years, perhaps. Um, but he had the greatest teacher. He met with Jesus for those years. So we have him recording or being with him seven years before time. So we go back a lot sooner and closer than something 23 years afterwards. Then he went, when he returned, he went to Jerusalem, met with Peter and was it John, met with these two eyewitnesses, was there for 15 days. 
So here we have Paul talking of this. So there's no time for a legend to develop is our point. There's no time to be embellished and have the story to grow. Immediately, we have this truth put together, this creedal form. So early. Next evidence, we look at empty. Matthew chapter 27, verse 59, tells us that Joseph of Arimathea had a new tomb and that he placed Jesus in his tomb. Some say that the Romans would not place a crucified person in a tomb. They said, well, they're not going to. They're just going to put him in, throw him in like, like the wicked enemies of modern warfare. They'll just have a common grave and dump everybody in there. That's what they said. Actually, there's evidence, there's proof that Romans allowed their family members to take their loved ones and to bury them. And more so, in 1968, this, what is, what is this a picture of? In 1968, an archaeologist found an ossuary, and in this ossuary is a stone box, is a stone box, and this bone was in there. That's a heel bone, and that's a spike through a heel bone. But the point is, is where they found it. They found it in this stone box. In fact, there's an article, 19, um, uh, I forget years dated, Times of Israel magazine wrote this article, and this is what they said in their article. After Yahon Anna's body, so apparently they were able to find the name of this person, was removed from the cross, it would have been laid out in a burial cave. After the flesh had decomposed a year or so later, leaving only the skeleton, his bones were gathered in a simple stone box, an ossuary, in keeping with the Jewish practice at the time. Today the box is displayed in a gallery at the Israel Museum alongside other artifacts from the period of Roman rule. The point is this crucified person was buried after a year after his flesh had decomposed. They took his bones and put him into a stone box. So what, what are we getting after? That Christ was buried and the tomb was empty. And this is a huge point. In fact, my men's small group, as I took, gave them a two-minute snapshot of today, they nailed this one, that the empty tomb would be important evidence. But I want to give three strands of evidence that you have on your notes. Three strands of evidence that we know the tomb was empty. And I think they're, they're pretty important strands. William Lane Craig said, or titled, The Jerusalem Factor. Here's how we know the tomb was empty. The Jerusalem Factor, and I quote, The site of Jesus' tomb was known both to followers of Christ and non-followers. If it were not empty, it would have been very unlikely for a movement based on the resurrection of Christ to explode into existence in the very same city where Jesus was crucified just a few weeks later. You follow that? Here we're going to say the tomb really wasn't empty and here is this Christianity is exploding in Jerusalem and the heart of the gospel message as we see it in Acts is that Christ died and rose again. They could have said, well, let's go, let's go check out this tomb. The body's still in there. He didn't rise again. But he did. So that's the Jerusalem factor. As Tim makes his way up, Tim's going to come up And we have our second strand of evidence, the criterion of embarrassment. Tim's going to tell us a story, and we're going to stress our point through what he says. 
didn't rehearse none of this, so I just kind of have it in my mind. But pastor asked me to talk about a uh, fish tail, or you know, maybe we use factual vet of a catching a large fish. Well, anyway, uh, did I mention my name's Tim Adams? All right. In the early 90s through probably the mid-2000s, my oldest brother, who now lives in Oklahoma, he went from Hurricane Alley to Tornado Alley. He's out in Oklahoma. But anyway, we would, I would go to spend two weeks in the spring, two weeks in the fall, and I would go down there and spend all my time fishing. And my brother, at that point, he owned a lawn care business, and he'd cut short or double up on one day so we can go out fishing and enjoy our day on the water. So um, we also, he also found uh, one of the members at his church was a commercial fisherman. And what I mean by that, not with a net or anything, he would actually be able to sell his catch to the market, wholesale market, and make a living doing that. So one day he took us out, this commercial fisherman, Barry, and uh, we were doing some bottom fishing, meaning we're going after fish that kind of congregate around coral reefs and whatnot. They love structure. So, but it's very good eating fish, snapper, grouper, and so on. So we end up catching some snappers, and then every time it seemed like, or every other time we're reeling in a fish, you know, our poles bending, we're fighting this fish, and then bam, something takes it, and here we go, snap. Like the line just breaks. I said, oh boy, we either have a shark down there or a big fish. So uh, Barry prepared for it. He brought out the big heavy gear and uh, puts a, it has heavy line on it and he put a, a bait on there and put it down there. And sure enough, he brings up uh, a Goliath grouper. Now, anybody know what that is? Anybody fish here? <laughs> I see you, Ted. Ah, so the state record for a Goliath grouper in the state of Florida is 680 pounds, over eight feet long. And uh, so he brought it in, and they are uh, protected. You cannot keep them. So I said, oh, Barry, I got to catch one of them. You know, just so sure enough, he led me to his pole and, we geared it up, and I end up hooking it in a big fish, and I'm reeling it. I fought it, and we got it on the boat, and this fish was probably 150 pounds and literally can swallow a bowling ball, and it had seven hooks that were broke off, pieces of string on it, because what they do, they grab the bait, run into their little hole in the, in the coral, and that cuts the line. So he had seven broken hooks in his mouth. So uh, as years go on, my brother and I, we talk about that event, and he says, I mean, I said, remember that fish? We, we could, this is a bowling ball. You could drop a basketball down his mouth. That was so big. I said, yeah, it was at least 100. That thing was 300 and some pounds, I'm sure. So, um, so as the years go on, we talk about the story, because Barry even left. He's, he's up in northern Florida now, and I never get the use of... Uh, going, privilege of going with Barry again. But anyway, um, now I, I just found out, you know, speaking with my brother lately, and, and 
I was probably this shy of breaking the state record of that fish. Did I mention my name's Tim Adams? Oh, my middle name, Pinocchio. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. The point of criterion of embarrassment, if you're going to tell a story, you're going to want to make yourself look good. Um, you're going to, if it's not true, you're going to tell facts to make it look true. Um, so if you find that the disciples or the writers of Scripture are telling a story and it's turning out to be embarrassing on them, or it looks like it's, it's, it's not putting them in a, in a real positive light, chances are it's probably true. And I'm referring to the criterion of embarrassment to who discovered the tomb empty? Who discovered it? Men? It was Peter, right? I mean, Peter went in and said, oh, we got to tell the whole world. He was the lead, lead apostle, top dog in those days, right? Peter, is that right? Oh, a lady did? i got to check. My, no. we, know, we know that. A women, women, ladies, we, we're grateful for you. Love the women in, in my life. Thankful. Uh, my wife and daughters. <laughs> i got to clarify that. Lynn knows that. But you know, women weren't looked upon in a positive light in the first century. They weren't allowed to be used in a court of law because they weren't viewed as, viewed as credible. Um, they're, they're, they weren't viewed very highly. A man would pray, God, thank you that you didn't make me a slave or a woman. So here is, are the gospel writers recording that who's at the tomb first? It was women. Women are finding, so, so it's probably true. Well, of course, we know it's true. So that's a positive strand of evidence, proof text, that what happened is genuinely recorded, what's recorded is genuinely true. Here's another strand of evidence. Opponents of Jesus' evaluation. The opponents of Jesus' evaluation. What did, they, what did they say? What were their evaluations? What were they saying? We know from sources inside the New Testament and outside the New Testament that the opponents of Jesus weren't saying, hey, let's just go to the grave. You know, it's when, when they heard the, the resurrection of Christ, they didn't say, oh, that's rubbish. We know it's not true. Let's go to the grave and find this. They're not saying that. What did they say? The disciples stole the body. That the body was there, but it's gone. What are they admitting by saying the disciples stole the body? What are they saying? What? If they're saying the disciples stole the body, what are the skeptics, the opponents of Jesus admitting? Let me put it to you differently. Um, if you teachers ever have uh, a student come up and say to you, I don't have my homework, the, the dog, you know that classic line, um, the dog ate, ate, my home, ate the homework. All right, maybe they'll be a little more creative and come up with something better than that. But what are they saying if they use such a, such a line? I don't have my homework. So really what they're saying is, yes, the tomb is empty. So as we look at who would have profited to, to have caused the tomb to be empty? Who would have profited to take the body of Jesus? Were the Roman leaders going to steal the body of Jesus? 
No, they had guards there. They, they want to secure it. Were the Jewish leaders going to take the body of Jesus? No, it's against everything about them. They want to make sure it's secured. Were the disciples who were cowards, who were hiding behind closed doors, who were afraid and they fled the scene of Jesus, were they suddenly going to become courageous and take the body of Jesus and overtake Roman soldiers and move the stone? Oh, and then, by the way, die for a lie? That we have the body buried over here, you know, a couple miles in the countryside. And now we're going to go out and preach Jesus rose again. I'm going to give my life for it. So the empty tomb is positive evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One last um, proof text or evidence as we turn, look at eyewitnesses. And we'll, we'll skip through this a little quickly. Jesus appeared to over 500 people. He appeared to skeptics, to believers during the daytime, during the nighttime, um, throughout the countryside in the city. And we have nine sources, nine sources that talk about Jesus' resurrection, people that saw Jesus. We have the creed, and that's huge, that 1 Corinthians 15 early document, that creed that talks about that he died and buried, rose again, and the 514 people, and named some specific people. We have Paul's testimony of the apostles and what they saw. We have the book of Acts. Book of Acts is pretty, pretty key when we see the book of Acts and, and all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And that's the apostles' message. The heart of their message is that Jesus died and rose again. And they're preaching that within, within months, weeks of Jesus' resurrection. We have the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have two sources outside of the Bible that talk about a polycarp who was a disciple of John. And he wrote a letter to the Philippians, but not the Philippian letter in the Bible. He wrote a letter to the church at Philippi, and he mentions five times in that letter that Jesus rose again. So Polycarp believed it. Then we have a disciple that was ordained by Peter, Clement, in the first century, wrote a letter to Corinth, and he also talked about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. So we look at all of this, this, this evidence. It's convincing how convincing is this evidence? We're going to look at a clip here. Paula Fredrickson. Let me back up. In 2000, you could get online and watch the whole interview by Peter Jennings, ABC documentary, The Search for Jesus. And it's an hour plus long. But in this, he has a liberal scholar, Paula Fredrickson. I want you to listen to what she says, okay? I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards um, attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know as an historian that they must have seen something. She says, I am convinced that they must have seen something. What is it that they saw? She says, I, I'm not saying that he rose again, but I'm convinced they saw something. William Lane Craig quotes atheist scholar Garrett Ludman, and he, he says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus. Death in which Jesus appeared to them as the resurrected Christ. 
Let me read that again. This atheist scholar, what he says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Why is he still an atheist then? He's convinced that they had experiences, that they saw the, the risen Christ. You know what he says the experiences were? Hallucinations. We want to talk a moment about hallucinations. Hallucinations are individual occurrences. Um, how, many of you, how many of you had a dream this past week? Okay, you had a dream. Um, I had a dream. How many of you enjoyed my dream this past week? <laughs> Why are you laughing? I had a dream. This is one of my dreams. Kevin, you'll enjoy this. I had a dream that my buddy, Roland Busilli, and I were together, and we had this big hot air balloon. I don't think about hot air balloon, but I had put my wallet and my car keys in there, and Roland, Roland was holding it, and I turned around, and all of a sudden, it's, you see, even in my dreams, I blame other people, that he had let go of the rope, and the balloon got away. I lost my wallet and car keys. So you shared that dream with me, right? No, it's individual experiences. We don't share dreams like, we don't share dreams like the common cold, okay? Um, they're, they're, they're individual. In fact, Dr. Dr. Gary Habermas of Liberty University said this, since a hallucination exists only in the subjective personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it. That is a big problem for the hallucination theory since there are repeated accounts of Jesus appearing to multiple people who reported the same thing. Also, the disciples were fearful, doubtful, and despair after the crucifixion where people who have hallucinations, who hallucinate, need a fertile mind of expectancy and anticipation, end of quote. So 500 people having the same dream you ready? It's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. So there was no hallucination theory that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. My last point before I turn it over to, to James to close us all out. The changed lives. If you would turn with me to Acts 4 verse 13. The changed lives of the disciples is a powerful argument to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They went from cowards, men hiding behind closed doors, men that even when the resurrected Jesus was before them said, I do, I will not, or when they heard of it, I should say, I will not believe until I put my hand into his side. Refused to believe his resurrection. They went from that point to bold preachers of the gospel that were willing to be persecuted, willing to be um, tortured, willing to be mocked, to be ridiculed. Look in Acts 4.13. Just one account. Here's Peter and John. They're about to be um, in prison. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, being with Jesus is meant to change lives. Being with Jesus is meant to impact us. By the way, there's seven sources um, inside and outside the New Testament that talk about the disciples that were willing to live deprived lives and to give their lives for their, for their Lord. Men that would never do so if they thought they were teaching and preaching a lie. So what about us? How are we spending our lives? We believe the resurrection is real. 
We saw that video clip this morning inviting people to, to Easter, to Easter drama. Um, we believe that Christ is resurrected. Shouldn't that drive us to not only invite people, but to try to witness to people, share the gospel of how God's Son died and resurrection has changed our lives. We're to be passionate witnesses for Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask James to come up at this time and wrap it up for us. All right, calm down. The resurrection. Um, such a great time in the year where we get to talk about the resurrection and, and our raising Savior. Pastor tonight focused on the evidences of the, of the resurrection. And uh, tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the results of the resurrection. Um, by definition, the uh, resurrection, to, I guess, resurrection simply means to, to rise from the dead. It's a very simple meaning. Um, not to be confused, though, with uh, being brought back from the dead. As you know, uh, Jesus Christ, even in the history of his um, ministry, he wasn't the first to be raised from the dead. In fact, he rose a couple of individuals from, from the dead. Uh, the most famous we know of is uh, Lazarus, his friend uh, in John, 13, uh, John 11, 43. And, and, and Jesus calls out to Lazarus and says, and says Lazarus, come forth. And, and, and at the command of his word, um, Lazarus came out of the tomb. Um, that being an involuntary action on the part of Lazarus, um, he didn't have the power uh, within, within himself to just get up and, and walk out of the grave. Um, apart from Christ calling him out by name, um, but in the case of Jesus, um, the Bible tells you that he alone has the power uh, to lay down his life and, and then to take it back up again. Uh, John 10, verse, uh, verse 18. So Jesus Christ um, is called the first fruit of those who died. And the reason why he can be called that uh, is because unlike any others, he rose never to die again. Um, I can imagine poor Lazarus being all you know, famous around town for being uh, somebody who was dead and brought back to life and, and later on having to die again. Um, you know, it could have been maybe decades afterwards, but he's, he's, he grew up, I mean, he grew older and, and probably got sick again and eventually died. Uh, Jesus Christ only died once. And, uh, and so he was the first fruit of those who died, and unlike others, he rose never to die again. Lazarus died um, a second time. Jesus did not. So Christ was raised from the dead with an immortal body. And, and that tells you uh, something about what we have to look forward to. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Pastor mentioned that a little bit. Um, he, he was brought back from the dead with an immortal body, never to die again. And as such, he heads a whole new order of creation as its sovereign. Uh, being the firstborn, um, he has not only risen and, or resurrected from the dead, um, but Jesus says to uh, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection uh, and the life, um, and, and, and went on just, just to tell them 
um, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he ends up saying to her, do you believe this? And that's important because uh, why, what does it matter that we believe that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and that we believe that it's true? Well, it matters a great deal. Uh, John MacArthur in his book, uh, theology book, talks about uh, 20 different points uh, that are uh, direct result of the resurrection. I've, uh, I'm going to highlight four of them for you because of uh, time's sake. But uh, one of them, Pastor Touch, based on a little bit, it's, it's, the first one would be uh, to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. There was a whole list up there of, of scriptures in the Old Testament that talks about the resurrection, including Isaiah 53. Um, in Psalm 16.10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, um, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of Jesus Christ being in the tomb and not being there long enough for his body to decay. Um, in the case of Lazarus, you see he was there for four days already, and when Jesus asked, that the tomb be opened up. They said, no, no, he's probably already, you know, smell. And, and, but Jesus, he was there Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning he woke up, and his body did not have time to see corruption. Uh, number two would be the fulfillment of New Testament uh, prophecies. Uh, Jesus, out of his own mouth, Matthew 17, 22, talks to his, his disciple and says, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Uh, or delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And, and, and they were destroyed by it, they were saddened by it, and yet they forget. And when it actually happened, they were surprised, and some of them were in disbelief. Um, so Jesus, his own mouth, he prophesied about his own death, and, and everything that he said that would happen about himself actually happened. Uh, and number three, uh, Proof that the Father accepted the atoning work, the atoning work of Christ. And in and, and the Old Testament, you'll see, like, whenever a sacrifice was offered, um, you know, uh, as a sign for, for, for God showing that he's he accepting the sacrifice, we see that even in the case of Elijah on the mountain, he would send fire, like, you know, he prayed and and God says, well, yeah, I'm going to show everybody that I accept your sacrifice and not the other prophets. And, 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 and the resurrection, Jesus coming out of the grave, is proof that God uh, accepts the, the, the sacrifice because he was the ultimate sacrifice. And finally, in number four, um, re, as a direct result of the resurrection, we as believers, we have the guarantee of our own resurrection. And uh, John uh, chapter 5, 29, 25 to 28 to 29 talks about, uh, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will, will hear his voice and come forth, some to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of condemnation. So the resurrection is for all of us, okay? But we all don't have the same destiny. Some of us will be happy and joyful and we're going to meet Christ, and we're going to be with him forever. Others will not be so fortunate, because they also will be resurrected, but to a different future, a different destiny. Um, so what can we take away from this? Um, three things. 
the first one is that death is defeated. Um, and, and, and that was demonstrated through, through Christ's triumphant triumph over, over death. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, same as Hosea 15, t- talks about, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Um, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, and, and, and so on. So by death being defeated, something that is directly related to that is the fear of death, which is eliminated. So think about it. If death is defeated, what is the point of fearing death? Um, if you have if you ask an unbeliever, what is the most uh, fearful thing? You know, we talk about the phobias. You know, the ten top ten phobias: fear of snake, fear of height, um, fear of darkness, fear of spiders. You know, um, why, why are people so afraid of these? If you really look at them, you'll see they're all related to death. Why are you afraid of height? Because if you fall from a high place, you might die, right? Why are you afraid of a snake? Well. If it stings you and it's poisonous, you might die, right? Um, well, why are you afraid of dark places? Well, maybe there's something lurking in there, something that is dangerous and you don't know is there, and it might hurt you and you might die. So ultimately, it's all about fear of death. But for us believers, that's been taken away. And because we don't have that fear anymore, we can live our life as freely to serve the Lord, Right? Because that, the fear of death is what's holding us. Think about it. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing in front of the fiery furnace. And, and they have the option. You could bow down to the statue, or you're going to go in there and, and burn to die. If the worst thing that can happen to you is not death, then, then you're doing pretty good, right? Um, Paul says, the apostle Paul says, for me to, to, to live is... Is again and to die. Well, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That 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 is an amazing scripture, and and it's profound because not all of us can say it. Um, some of us who call ourselves believers, we, we probably still cannot say, "Hey, whichever way it happens, it's a win-win situation." Um, number three, I guess, to close here, it's as a direct result of the resurrection. And what we can take away from it is a new, newness of life, um, to have that new perspective. Uh, the Bible talks about in 1 Peter th- uh, 1, chapter, verse 3 says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, as demonstrated in the sacrament of baptism. We've seen that um, You know, when you go down in the water, you die with Christ, and then when you get pulled up, you're resurrected with him. And that's the new life he's talking about. With the new birth, you also have a new mandate uh, to live a different life. And and without the hope of the resurrection, it's it's very difficult to do that. Um, just, Just as an application, like when you think about the resurrection, um, there's something that you know, that really strikes me because, like, everyone listening at the sound of my voice, we all have two things in common. Uh, it doesn't matter where you're from or, you know, how you were brought up and what languages or countries or, or different backgrounds or cultures. We have two things in common. We all have a date of birth. 
and, and that's when you are welcomed into this world as a new little baby and everybody's happy. And, and we all have a date of death. Um, so it is appointed to all men, you know, to, 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 to go through that uh, process. And, and one, and for good reason, but God is sovereign over both, right? He already has on his calendar uh, the dates written for you. You may not know when, you, you may know when you were born, but you may not know when you're going to die. And, and, and God has it written in his calendar. And every decision that you make between these two dates um, will ultimately determine where you spend eternity and who you spend it with, okay? But it would also, it will also shape the way you live your life, the quality of life you live in the here and now. And, and knowing the truth of the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. Knowing that Jesus Christ is preeminent, um, is he preeminent in your life, number one. But he is the same God, the same eternal Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 8. Now, he is now exalted by God the Father to the highest place. And he has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow. And within the parentheses here, small parentheses, is that every every knee shall bow of those that are in heaven, of those that are on earth, and of those under the earth. That, that pretty much covers everyone, doesn't it? Um, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Knowing that truth of the resurrection should make the biggest difference in each of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to have this hope that you have freely given, Lord God, through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We are so fortunate, Lord, to have one of the biggest fear that hinders us as fallen, sinful people, the fear of death, Lord. It's been defeated on the cross, and we are free to live a life that is worthy of you, Lord God. We ask that you give us your blessing, Lord, and, and, and just lead us and guide us, and, and especially through this time of year as we look into Easter and what it all means, Lord. We just ask you to remind us, Lord, of the sacrifice. Remind us of the work that was done on the cross, on our behalf, that we may be people that are inspired, not just to live the life, but also to share it with others, Lord God. And we thank you for our pastor and the word that was preached this morning. And, and we just ask that it continue to work in our lives throughout the week, that we may be changed by it for the better, Lord. And uh, we ask for your blessing as we depart today and, and going on about our, our lives, Lord. And, and we just ask that you you continue to work in our hearts and that we may be changed 
uh, for the better to be more and more like Christ. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.